Puritanismus Nov Anglicanus The Life of Mr. John Davenport Chapter 4 of Book 1 Antiquities In Magnalia Christi Americana The Ecclesiastical History of New England From its first planting in the year 1620 Unto the year of our Lord 1698 By Cotton Mather a noted author of more than twice seven treatises, and chaplain to two successive queens of England, was that Christopher Davenport, whose assumed name was Franciscus a Santa Clara. And in Mr. Rushworth's collection of speeches made in the celebrated Parliament, 1640, I find Sir Benjamin Rudyard using these words, quote, Santa Clara hath published that if a synod were held, non intermixtis puritanis, setting Puritans aside, our articles and their religion would soon be agreed. They have so brought it to pass that under the name of Puritans all our religion is branded. Whosoever squares his actions by any rule, either divine or humane, he is a Puritan. Whosoever would be governed by the king's laws, he is a Puritan. Whether this account of matters be allowed or no, there was, though not a brother, as a certain wooden historian in his Athenae Oxonienses has reported, yet a kinsman of that Santa Clara, who was among the most eminent Puritans of those days, and this was our holy and famous Mr. John Davenport one of whom I may, on many accounts, use the eulogy with which the learned still mention Salmasius, vir nunquam satis laudatus, nec temere sine laude nominandus. A man never yet praised enough, and never to be named without praise. Mr. John Davenport was born at Coventry, in the year 1597, of worthy parents, a father who was mayor of the city, and a pious mother, who, having lived just long enough to devote him, as Hannah did, her Samuel, unto the service of the sanctuary, left him under the more immediate care of heaven to fit him for that service. The grace of God sanctified him with good principles, while he had not yet seen two sevens of years in an evil world, and by that age he had also made such attainments in learning as to be admitted into Brazen Nose College in Oxford. From thence, when he was but nineteen years old, he was called unto public and constant preaching in the city of London, as an assistant unto another divine, where his notable accomplishments for a minister, and his courageous residence with and visiting of his flock in a dreadful plague time, caused much notice to be quickly taken of him. His degree of Master of Arts he took not, until in course he was to proceed Bachelor of Divinity, and then, with universal approbation, he received both of these laurels together. This pious man was both an hard student and a great preacher. His custom was to sit up very late at his lucubrations, whereby, though he found no sensible damage himself, and never felt his head ache, yet his counsel was that other students would not follow his example. 
But the effects of his industry were seen by all men, in his approving himself upon all occasions an universal scholar. As for the sermons wherewith he had fed the church of God, he wrote them for the most part more largely than the most of ministers, and he spoke them with a gravity, an energy, an acceptableness, whereto few ministers ever have arrived. Indeed, his greatest enemies, when they heard him, would acknowledge him to be among the best of preachers. The ablest men about London were his nearest friends, among whom he held a very particular correspondence with Dr. Preston. He, when he died, left his notes with Mr. Davenport by him to be published, and accordingly with Dr. Sibbs you'll find Mr. Davenport signing some of their dedications. About the year 1626, there were several eminent persons, among whom were two doctors of divinity, with two other divines and four lawyers, whereof one the king's sergeant at law, and four citizens, whereof one the lord mayor of London, engaged in a design to procure a purchase of impropriations, and with the profits thereof to maintain a constant, able, and painful ministry in those parts of the kingdom where there was most want of such a ministry. The divines concerned in this design were Dr. Googe, Dr. Sibbs, Mr. Offspring, and our Mr. Davenport, and such an incredible progress was made in it that it is judged all the impropriations in England would have been honestly and easily recovered unto the immediate service of the Reformed religion. But Bishop Laud, looking with a jealous eye on this undertaking, lest it might in time give a secret growth to nonconformity, he obtained a bill to be exhibited in the Exchequer Chamber by the King's Attorney General, against the Fafis in the management of it. Upon this occasion, I find this great man writing in his great Bible the ensuing passages. Quote, February 11th, 1632. The business of the Fafis being to be heard the third time at the Exchequer, I prayed earnestly that God would assist our counsellors in opening the case, and be pleased to grant that they might get no advantage against us to punish us as evildoers, promising to observe what answer he gave. Which, seeing he hath graciously done and delivered me from the thing I feared, I record to these ends, first, to be more industrious in my family, second, to check my unthankfulness, third, to quicken myself to thankfulness, Fourth, to awaken myself to more watchfulness for the time to come in remembrance of his mercy, which I beseech the Lord to grant, upon whose faithfulness in his covenant I cast myself, to be made faithful in my covenant. John Davenport. The issue of the business was this. The court condemned their proceedings as dangerous to the church and state, pronouncing the gifts, fefments, and contrivances made to the uses aforesaid to be illegal, and so dissolved the same, confiscating their money unto the king's use. 
Yet the criminal part referred unto was never prosecuted in the star chamber, because the design was generally approved and multitudes of discreet and devout men extremely resented the ruin of it. It happened that soon after this, the famous Mr. John Cotton was fallen under such a storm of persecution for his nonconformity as made it necessary for him to propose and purpose a removal out of the land. Whereupon Mr. Davenport, with several other great and good men, considering the eminent learning, prudence, and holiness of that excellent person, could be at no rest until they had by a solemn conference informed themselves of what might move him to such a resolution. The issue of the conference was that instead of their dissuading him from exposing himself to such sufferings as were now before him, he convinced them of the truth in the cause for which he suffered, and they became satisfied both of the evil and sundry matters of worship and order imposed upon them, and of the duty which lay upon them in their places to endeavor the reformation of things in the church according to the word of God. Mr. Davenport's inclination to nonconformity from this time fell under the notice and anger of his diocesan, who presently determined the marks of his vengeance for him, of which, being seasonably and sufficiently advertised, he convened the principal persons under his pastoral charge in Coleman Street at a general vestry, desiring them on this occasion to declare what they would advise. For acknowledging the right which they had in him as their pastor, he would not by any danger be driven from any service which they should expect or demand at his hands. But he would imitate the example of Luther, who, upon letters from the church of Wittenberg, from whence he had withdrawn for his security, upon the direction of the Duke of Saxony, returned unto the courageous exercise of his ministry." Upon a serious deliberation, they discharged his conscientious obligation by agreeing with him that it would be best for him to resign. But although he now hoped for something of a quiet life, his hope was disappointed, for he was continually dogged by raging busy pursuivants, from whom he had no safety but by retiring into Holland. Over to Holland he went, in the latter end of the year 1633, where the messengers of the church, under the charge of Mr. Paget, met him in his way to Amsterdam, inviting him to become the colleague of their aged pastor. But Mr. Davenport had not been long there before his indisposition to the promiscuous baptizing of children, concerning whom there was no charitable or tolerable testimony of their belonging to Christian parents, was by Mr. Paget so improved against him as to procure him the displeasure of the Dutch classes in the neighborhood. The contention on this occasion proceeded so far that though the Dutch ministers had under their hands declared, quote, We desire nothing more than that Mr. Davenport, whose eminent learning and singular piety is much approved and commended of all the English our brethren, may be lawfully promoted unto the ministry of the English church. We do also greatly approve of his good zeal and care, 
of his having some precedent private examination of the parents and sureties of children to be baptized in the Christian religion. End quote. Yet the matter could not be accommodated. Mr. Davenport could not be allowed, except he would promise to baptize the children of such whose parents and sureties were, upon examination, found never so much unchristianized, ignorant, or scandalous. He therefore desisted from his public ministry in Amsterdam about the beginning of the year 1635, contenting himself to set up a catechetical exercise in the family where he sojourned on the afternoon of the Lord's Days, an hour after the public sermons were over. But some considerable number of people, at length, resorting to this exercise, a jealousy was pretended by his adversary, that the design of it was to promote such sects as, indeed, the chief design of it was to prevent. And upon this pretense he was hindered even from this lesser opportunity of doing service also. The fuller story of these uncomfortable and unreasonable brangles the reader may find in an apologetical discourse of Mr. Davenport's, published for his own vindication, wherein he does with a learned pen handle several points much controverted in the Reformed Churches, and show himself a divine well-studied in the controversies of the present and the former ages. But the upshot of all was that he returned back to London, where he told his friends that he thought God carried him over into Holland on purpose to bear witness against that promiscuous baptism, which at least bordered very near upon a profanation of the holy institution. He observed that when a reformation of the church has been brought about in any part of the world, it has rarely been afterwards carried on any one step further than the first reformers did succeed in their first endeavors. He observed that as easily might the ark have been removed from the mountains of Ararat, were it first grounded, as a people get any ground in reformation after and beyond the first remove of the reformers. And this observation quickened him to embark in a design of reformation, wherein he might have opportunity to drive things in the first essay, as near to the precept and pattern of Scripture as they could be driven. The plantation of New England afforded him this opportunity, with the chief undertakers whereof he had many consultations, before he had ever taken up any purpose of going himself into that part of the world. And he had indeed a very great stroke in the encouraging and enlivening of that noble undertaking. He was one of those by whom the patent for the Massachusetts colony was procured. And though his name were not among the patentees, because he himself desired it might be omitted, lest his enemy, the Bishop of London, then of the King's Privy Council, should upon his account appear the more fiercely against it, Yet his purse was in it, his time was in it, and he contributed unto it all manner of assistances. This he did before his going to Holland. And while he was in Holland, he received letters of Mr. Cotton from the country whereto he had thus been a father, telling him, 
that the order of the churches and the commonwealth was now so settled in New England, by common consent, that it brought into his mind the new heaven and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Wherefore, soon after his return for London, he shipped himself with several eminent Christians and their families for New England, where, by the good hand of God upon them, they arrived in the summer of the year 1637. Mr. Cotton welcomed Mr. Davenport, as Moses did Jethro, hoping that he would be as eyes unto them in the wilderness. For by the cunning and malice of Satan, all things in this new English wilderness were then surprised into a deal of confusion on the occasion of the antinomian opinions then spread abroad. But the learning and wisdom of this worthy man in the synod then assembled at Cambridge did contribute more than a little to dispel the fascinating mists which had suddenly disordered all our affairs. Having done his part in that blessed work, as we have elsewhere more fully related, he, with his friends, who were more fit for Zebulun's ports than for Issachar's tents, chose to go farther westward, where they began a plantation and a colony since distinguished by the name of New Haven, and endeavored, according to his understanding, a yet stricter conformity to the word of God, in settling of all matters, both civil and sacred, than he had yet seen exemplified in any other part of the world. There the famous church of New Haven, as well as the other neighboring towns, enjoyed his ministry, his discipline, his government, and his universal direction for many years together. Even till after the restoration of King Charles II, Connecticut and New Haven were by one charter incorporated. And here, with what holiness, with what watchfulness, with what usefulness he discharged his ministry, it is worthy of a remembrance among all that would propose unto themselves a worthy example. Nevertheless, all that I shall here preserve of it is this one article. A young minister, once receiving of wise and good counsels from this good and wise and great man, he received this among the rest, that he should be much in ejaculatory prayer, for indeed ejaculatory prayers, as arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are they, happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. It was believed by some curious observers that Mr. Davenport himself was well used unto that sacred skill of walking with God, and having his eyes ever towards the Lord, and being in the fear of the Lord all the day long by the use of ejaculatory prayers, on the innumerable occasions which every turn of our lives does bring for those devotions." He was not only constant in more settled, whether social or secret prayers, but also in the midst of all besieging encumbrances, tying the wishes of his devout soul unto the arrows of ejaculatory prayers. He would shoot them away unto the heavens, from whence he still expected all his help. With such a glory, with such a defense, was New Haven blessed. 
But his influences were not confined unto his own colony of New Haven. They were extended as far as his general and generous care of all the churches could carry him. And hence I find him in a particular manner expressing his good affections unto the Irenic designs and studies, which were in those days managing by some great men, for the restoring of communion among the divided churches of the Reformation. Perhaps I cannot give an exacter character of this eminent person's disposition than by my transcribing and my translating of a few passages in a letter to the famous Dury, by him composed, and by the rest of the ministers in his colony subscribed. Note to reader, Latin quote passed over, translation as follows. Quote, While the fire of schism has been raging, the hateful fury has miserably torn to pieces the churches that should have been held together in the strictest bonds of love and unity, insomuch that they who should have united for mutual help against the common enemy, alas, have even fallen upon one another as in the day of Midian. As the young men upon the provocation of Abner wounded one another to death, Thus, by the fault of some who do the part rather of bad wranglers than of good preachers, there do arise in the Reformed churches those broils and strifes and animosities and schisms and scandals, which offend the weak and afflict the good, and are no little satisfaction to the enemies of gospel truth. Quote. Note, further Latin quote passed over. Translation as follows. Quote, but now that the keeper of Israel, the God of peace, hath put it into the hearts of many churches and rulers, to apprehend it necessary that a cure should be sought for these wounds, behold, the minds of all good men do with a raised hope expect and happy close of these mischiefs, and with most hearty prayers do beseech the Father of mercies that he would, by the grace of his Spirit, according to his word, pleased to direct the counsels and actions of his servants for the glory of his own holy name. Note, Latin quote, passed over, translation. Quote, You have done right well, reverend brother, in that you have, after a brotherly manner, unto the promoting of this affair in the communion of saints invited us, who belong to the same mystical body with yourselves, under one head, our Lord Jesus Christ. Note, Latin quote, passed over. Translation. Quote, Nevertheless, tis not to be made an article of complaint against the Orthodox, as if they would hinder or delay the peace desired so much among the Reformed churches, because they do, as necessity shall call for it, use that liberty of refuting errors which peace ought to be no bar unto, and by their example would rescue the future peace from the extremes wherewith it would be rendered faulty. For we reckon that as well to judge what things are errors as to bear with such errors and weaker brethren are both of them agreeable to what we have been taught by the apostles. The toleration of our erroneous brethren should not be without rebuking, but it should be without rejecting of those brethren. End quote.
It is a notable expression, and a wonderful concession of that great Cardinal Bellarmine, the last Goliath of the Romish Philistines. Ecclesia ex intentione fideles, tantum colligit, et si nosit impios et incredulos, eos aut nunquam admitterunt, aut casu admissos excluderet. Quote, the church, he says, intentionally gathers only true believers, and if she knew who were the wicked and faithless, either she would not admit them at all, or if they were accidentally admitted, she would exclude them. End quote. Our Davenport, conceiving it a shame that any Protestant should protest for less church purity than what the confessions of a learned papist allowed, ere he was aware, to be contended for, did now at New Haven make church polity to be one of his greatest concernments and endeavors. It was his declared principle that more is required of men in order to their being members of an instituted church than that they profess the Christian faith and ask the visible seals of the covenant and the fellowship of the church. All which may be done by persons notoriously scandalous in their lives, from whom the command is, turn away, but only such persons may be received as members of a particular church, who, according to Matthew sixteen, eighteen, and 19, make such a public profession of their faith, as the church may, in charitable discretion, judge has blessedness annexed unto it, and such as flesh and blood hath not revealed." In pursuance of this principle, he was, like his dear friend, that great man, Dr. Thomas Goodwin, persuaded, quote, that, as he speaks, there are many rules in the word whereby it is meet for us to judge who are saints, by which rules those who are betrusted to receive men unto ordinances and churches are to be guided, and so to separate between the precious and the unclean, as the priests of old were enabled and commanded by ceremonial differences, which God then made to typify the like discrimination of persons. And therefore, making the marks of a repenting and a believing soul, given in the word of God, the rules of his trials, he used a more than ordinary exactness in trying those that were admitted unto the communion of the church, Indeed, so very thoroughly, and I had almost said severely strict, were the terms of his communion, and so much I had well nigh said overmuch, were the golden snuffers of the sanctuary employed by him in his exercise of discipline towards those that were admitted, that he did all that was possible to render the renowned church of New Haven like the New Jerusalem. And yet, after all, the Lord gave him to see that in this world it was impossible to see a church state whereinto there enters nothing which defiles. This great man hath himself, in one of his own treatises, observed it. Quote, the officers and brethren of the church are but men, who judge by the outward appearance. Therefore their judgment is fallible and hath deceived as we see in the judgment of the apostles and the church at Jerusalem concerning Ananias and Sapphira, and in that of Philip and the church in Samaria concerning Simon Magus. 
Their duty is to proceed as far as men may, by rule, with due moderation and gentleness, to try them who offer themselves to fellowship, whether they be believers or not. Refusing known hypocrites, though when they have done all they can, close hypocrites will creep in. End quote. And now I might entertain my reader, I hope, with a profitable, I am sure, with a very prodigious history. I will on this occasion relate most horrible things done in the land, which this good man saw, to confirm his own observation, but I will take a fitter occasion for it. After this, the remaining days of this eminent person were worn away under the unhappy temptations of a wilderness. It so happened that the most part of the first church in Boston, the metropolis of the colony, out of respect unto his vast abilities, had applied themselves unto him to succeed those famous lights, Cotton and Norton and Wilson, who, having from that golden candlestick illuminated the whole country, were now gone to shine in an higher orb. His removal from New Haven was clogged with many temptatious difficulties. For miraculi instar, vitae itersi longum sine offensione percurera. That is, it would be a miracle if one should make so long a journey of life without encountering some stumbling stone. But he broke through them all in expectation to do what he judged would be a more comprehensive service unto the churches of New England than could have been done by him in his now undistinguished colony. On this occasion, if I should mention that lamentable observation of old Epiphanius, who says, I have known some confessors who delivered up their body and their spirit for the Lord, and, preserving in confession and charity, obtained great proof of the sincerity of their faith, and excelled in piety, humanity, and religion, and were continual in fastings, and, in a word, flourished in virtue. And these very men were blemished with some vice, as either they were prone to reproach men, or would swear profanely, or were talkative, or were prone to anger, or got gold and silver, or were defiled with some such filth, which nevertheless detract not from the just praises of their virtue. I must add upon it that Mr. Davenport was a confessor, flourishing in virtue, upon whom they that, upon the score of his removal, were most of all dissatisfied at him, would not yet charge those unhappy blemishes. And if any good men in the sifting times did count him either too straight or too high in some of his apprehensions, nevertheless these things also detract not from the just praises of his virtue. So rich a treasure of the best gifts as was in our Davenport was well worth coveting by the considerablest church of the land. He was a most incomparable preacher, and a man of more than ordinary accomplishments, a prince of preachers, and worthy to have been a preacher to princes. 
He had been acquainted with great men and great things, and was great himself, and had a great fame abroad in the world. Yea, now he was grown old, like Moses, his force was not abated. And the character which I remember that old pagan historian Diodorus the Sicilian gave of our Moses, everybody was ready to give of our Davenport, quote, he was a man of great soul and very powerful in his life, end quote. But his removal did seem too much to verify an observation by the famous Dr. Tuckney thus expressed, quote, It is ill transplanting a tree that thrives in the soil, end quote. For, accepting the call of Boston Church in the year 1667, that church and the world must enjoy him no longer than till the year 1670. When on March 15th, aged 72 years, he was by apoplexy fetched away to that glorious world where the spirits of Cotton and Davenport are together in heaven, as their bodies are now in one tomb on earth. His constant and various employments otherwise would not permit him to leave many printed effects of his judicious industry besides those few already mentioned. Although he were so close and bent a student that the rude pagans themselves took much notice of it, and the Indian savages in the neighborhood would call him so big study man. Only there is in the hands of the faithful a savory treatise of his entitled The Saints Anchor Hold, in the preface whereof a duum virate of renowned men. To wit, Mr. Hook and Mr. Carroll give this attestation, quote, As touching the author of this treatise, in whose heart the text was written by the finger of God, before the discourse was penned by his own hand, his piety, learning, gravity, experience, judgment, do not more commend him to all that know him than this work of his may commend itself to them that read it. End quote. The Christian faith has also been solidly and learnedly maintained by him in a discourse long since published for the quote, demonstration of our blessed Jesus to be the true Messiah. Nor would I forget a sermon of his on 2 Samuel 23.3 at the anniversary court of election at Boston, 1669, afterwards published. Among the many which he hath prefixed unto the books of other authors, I know not whether his excellent epistle before Mr. Scudder's daily walk may not, for the worth of it, be reckoned itself a book, as the book itself was the directory of his own daily walk. Moreover, there is published a treatise of his under this title, The Power of Congregational Churches. In the preface whereof Mr. Nathaniel Mather, at this time the worthy and well-known pastor of such a church in the city of London, has these very significant expressions concerning him. Quote, Certain it is, the principles held forth in this treatise cost the reverend author not only many sufferings, but also many, very many sad searchings, and much reading and study on set purpose, 
accompanied with manifold prayers and cries to the Father of lights for light therein. After all which, he was more confirmed in them, and attained to such comfortable clearness therein, as bore him up with much inward peace and satisfaction, under all his afflictions, on the account of his persuasion in these points. And so persuaded, lived, and so died this grave and serious, spirited man." There is likewise published a discourse about civil government in a new plantation whose design is religion. In the title page whereof, the name of Mr. Cotton is, by a mistake, put for that of Mr. Davenport. And there was lately transcribed for the press from his notes a large volume of accurate and elaborate sermons on the whole book of Canticles. But the death of the gentleman chiefly concerned in the intended impression proved the death of the impression itself. To conclude, there will be but an unjust account given of the things preached and written by this reverend man if we do not mention one singular favor of heaven unto him. It is well known that, in the earliest of the primitive times, the faithful did, in a literal sense, believe the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the rising and reigning of the saints with him a thousand years before the rest of the dead live again. A doctrine which, however, some of later years have counted it heretical, yet in the days of Irenaeus was questioned by none but such as were counted heretics. Tis evident from Justin Martyr that this doctrine of the Kiliad was in his days embraced among all Orthodox Christians, nor did this kingdom of our Lord begin to be doubted until the kingdom of Antichrist began to advance into a considerable figure, and then it fell chiefly under the reproaches of such men as were fain to deny the divine authority of the book of Revelation and of the second epistle of Peter. He is a stranger to antiquity who does not find and own the ancients generally of the persuasion, which is excellently summed up in those words of Langtantius, Veniet sumi et maximi dei filius, verum ille cum delaverit in justitiam judiciumque maximum fecerit, ac justos qui a principio fuerunt ad vitam restauraverit Mille annos inter homines versabitur, eosque justissimo imperio reget. That is, the Son of the Most High and Mighty shall come, and he, when he shall have overcome injustice, and established universal righteousness, and shall have raised up from the dead all the saints who have existed from the beginning of the world, shall dwell in person among men for a thousand years, and shall govern them with most righteous sway. Nevertheless, at last men came not only to lay aside the modesty expressed by one of the first considerable anti-millinaries, namely Jerome, when he said, Quae licet non sequamur, tamen condemnare non possumus, eo quod multi virorum ecclesiasticorum et marturum ista dixerent. That is, though we may not cordially assent to all these doctrines, 
we cannot condemn them, for they have been affirmed by many of the heroes and martyrs of the church. But also with violence to persecute the millinery truth as an heretical pravity. So the mystery of our Lord's appearing in his kingdom lay buried in popish darkness, till the light thereof had a fresh dawn, since the Antichrist entered into the last half-time of the period allotted for him. And now, within the last few sevens of years, as things grow nearer to accomplishment, learned and pious men, in great numbers everywhere, come to receive, explain, and maintain the old faith about it. But here was the special favor of heaven to our Davenport, that so many years ago, when in both Englands the true notion of the Kiliad was hardly apprehended by as many divines of note as there are mouths of Nilus, yet this worthy man clearly saw into it, and both preached and wrote those very things about the future state and coming of the Lord, the calling of the Jews, and the first and second resurrection of the dead, which do now of late years get more ground against the opposition of the otherwise-minded, and find a kinder entertainment among them that search the scriptures. And whereof he afterwards, when he was an old man, gave the world a little taste in a judicious preface before a most learned and nervous treatise, composed by one that was then a young man, about the mystery of the salvation of Israel. Even then, so long ago it was, that he asserted, quote, a personal, visible, powerful, and glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ unto judgment long before the end of the world, end quote. But thus we take our leave of this renowned man and leave him resting in hope to stand in his lot at that end. Epitaph John Davenport safely in port, in life the ornament of New England and the Church, dead the object of their common regret. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things Reformed.